0: Well, if you have been with us for most of these sermons in Mark's gospel, um, everything that I just read should sound uh, very familiar to you, Uh, and that is because it is. Uh, uh, From Mark chapter 6, verse 31, through the end of Mark 7, actually mirrors and parallels everything in Mark 8. Uh, And in both of these sections, there is a a very clear six-step sequence of events that Mark Repeats. So, uh, we might ask, why does Mark do this? Why does he arrange the material this way? Well, uh, the purpose of this repetition is twofold. Uh, first... Uh, it draws out for us certain points of similarity and dissimilarity that we may have overlooked on our first read. And when you do the work of comparing and contrasting these two cycles, uh, you actually have a lot more insight into the mystery of the kingdom. You can understand a lot more. Uh, The second reason for this repetition is that uh, this drives home uh, the fact that we are often just as clueless and forgetful as the disciples. The disciples are firsthand witnesses to Jesus' miracles and teaching, and yet at this stage they cannot see or understand the spiritual meaning of his miracles and teaching. They still do not recognize that this is God dwelling amongst them, nor can they fathom that God is going to die and rise again for their sins. So this is the blindness, the deafness, the muteness that the disciples are suffering, and they need Jesus to help them. So Mark is kind of giving us a second chance uh, now as readers to try and catch what the disciples missed the first time or perhaps what we missed the first time. So let me uh, just briefly summarize that six-step sequence of events so we have it uh, somewhat fresh in our mind as we go uh, now into chapter 8. So uh, this six-step cycle that begins in uh, chapter 6, verse 31, it starts with a feeding of a multitude. So in uh, chapter 6, he feeds 5,000. Here he feeds Four thousand. The next thing that happens, the second thing is Jesus gets into a ship and crosses the sea. So he feeds them, gets in a ship, crosses the sea. And then the next thing that happens, the third thing is Jesus has a conflict with the Pharisees. In Mark 7, we saw a conflict over handwashing. And here he has a conflict over his credentials. After this conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus then has a conversation with someone about bread. Uh, In chapter 7, it was with the Syrophoenician woman. In Mark 8, it's with his disciples. After he talks about bread with someone, then he's going to do a miraculous healing. So in Mark 7, he heals a deaf and mute man, and then next week we'll actually see him heal a blind man. And then both healings result in a confession of faith. This is the sixth step so the people confess in mark 7 he has done all things well and we'll see peter confess next week thou art the christ so uh, jesus that, that whole cycle again he feeds a crowd he crosses the sea he fights with pharisees he talks about bread he heals someone and then there's a confession of faith so that's the pattern and mark just repeats this cycle back to back what all of this uh, repetition is leading to is the very center of the book. There's 16 chapters in Mark. We're uh, now in chapter 8. We're approaching the very center. And uh, the way that the Hebrews write books, uh, the very center of the book is often uh, one of the like central points, the main thing. So when you get to the center of a book, you should be looking out. What is the most significant thing that this author wants us to know and why did he Put it here. You can even do this when you think about the Torah. So, what's the? Uh, you take the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. What's the center book in the Torah? Leviticus. Leviticus. That's the middle. And then you could even go further and say, what's the middle of Leviticus? Well, the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. The the ritual of rituals. So that's the center hinge upon which the entire Torah spreads out. It's over the very center, that ritual, the day of atonement. So this is just a Hebrew way of writing, and uh, you see that also here in Mark's gospel. So we're coming to the very center of the book, and then there's often going to be something that mirrors that center at the very beginning and at the very end. How did Mark's gospel begin? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The middle, Peter's going to say... Thou art the Christ. And then at the very end, the Roman centurion will confess, truly, this was the Son of God. So you have this kind of progression in the Hebrew mind, and this is often how books are structured. So that's what all of this uh, repetition and uh, structure that Mark is putting together, this is what it's leading to. Um, What has been, uh, I'll I'll read to you what that center is. So this is Mark 8, 31 to 32. Uh, It says, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he spake that saying openly. Uh, One of the challenges, if you've been a Christian for a while or are familiar with the Gospels, is you kind of start reading the Gospel already knowing how it's going to end. And you can kind of forget that so far, we've preached all these sermons in Mark, uh, there's been no talk about Jesus dying and rising again yet, okay? This is the gospel, but we've, we've not arrived at that point. There's been nothing said about that, and it's not gonna be until next week that we actually get this first revelation of something that has been concealed. So uh, it's important for us to just know that that's where our sermon this morning is heading. It's the setup for the center of the book. So let's turn now to our text and uh, see what the Lord will show us. Um, Our text, again, divides neatly into three sections. So in verses 1 to 9, you have Jesus feeding the 4,000. In verses 10 to 13, he has conflict with the Pharisees. And then in verses 14 to 21, he talks with his disciples about bread. So starting in verse 1, it says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for diverse of them came from far. So let's do a little comparing and contrasting with the feeding of the 5,000. We note here uh, that in both instances, Jesus is said to have great compassion on the multitude. However, If you look closely, the reason for Jesus' compassion is different. So with the 5,000, Jesus is moved with compassion, it says, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And they need teaching. They need instruction. And therefore, Jesus meets that spiritual need by teaching them before he does any miracle of multiplying bread. Here, it's kind of the reverse. The people have been with Jesus for so long now, three days now, that Jesus is moved with compassion because they have nothing to literally eat. And so Jesus meets their physical need by feeding them. Already we have seen that physical food is an analogy for spiritual food, and Jesus continues to develop that theme here. Um, Another thing we should know is that uh, this feeding of the 4,000 takes place in predominantly Gentile territory. And so this crowd is probably a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. At the very least, the disciples are Jews and the crowd are Gentiles. Remember the scene just prior to this one that we saw last week, Jesus was entire in Tyre and Sidon up uh, northwest from the Sea of Galilee, and then he came down uh, to the coast of the Decapolis. A uh, Decapolis means 10 cities, and this is a uh, overwhelmingly gentile area. Uh, we remember also last week the example of the Greek speaking Syrophoenician woman, a gentile who begs for scraps of bread from the master's table. Then the next thing you have is this. A hungry crowd in Gentile territory, and you have the master. And you might wonder, are there enough scraps from the children's bread to go around for so many people? This is at least what the disciples are wondering in part. So in verse 4, it says, And the disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these uh, these with bread here in the wilderness? Whence can a man satisfy these with bread here in the wilderness? Uh, This is a very dangerous question to ask. It is dangerous because this is the exact same question that the unbelieving Israelites asked in the wilderness, and that was where they died. Psalm 78 recalls this sin of unbelief, saying, "'And they sinned yet more against him "'by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. "'And they tempted God in their heart "'by asking meat for their lust. "'Yea, they spake against God, they said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? So just like the Israelites tested God and did not believe, the 12 disciples are committing the same sin. The Israelites witnessed firsthand miracle upon miracle upon miracle. The 10 plagues in Egypt The Passover, the Red Sea crossing, miracle water flowing in the desert, a cloud by day, a fire by night. And yet for all those signs and wonders, that unbelieving generation did not believe or enter into God's rest. They died in the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. Well, the 12 are in danger of suffering that same fate. They have already seen Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, and even raise the dead. They just partook and handled miracle bread that Jesus multiplied to feed the 5,000. And yet they look God in the face and say to him, from whence can a man satisfy these with bread here in the wilderness? Clearly, they still do not know who Jesus is. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse five, and he asked them, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people and they had a few small fishes and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets and they that had eaten were about 4,000 and he sent them away. So Jesus repeats here what he did with the 5,000. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples to distribute. This is, of course, a foreshadowing of what happens in the Lord's Supper. It's also a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. It's what uh, the church has become, uh, Jesus' disciples feeding uh, the crowds. The major difference that we should notice is uh, in the numbers, the number of loaves, the number of leftovers, the number of people fed. So Jesus used, in the first instance, five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people, and then there were 12 baskets left over. Here he uses seven loaves, and uh, we're not told how many fishes, a few, uh, to feed 4,000 people, and then there are seven baskets left over. Uh, So does anyone understand this riddle? (laughs) Uh, there, There is a lot of debate over what these numbers mean or if they have any meaning at all, you'll find, you know, all sorts of different uh, theories on this. Uh, the church fathers uh, saw in the five loaves and two fishes a reference to the five books of Moses and then the Psalms and the prophets. Those are the two fishes. Uh, you, we said, you know, you can take that or leave it. Um, but at the very least, we know from that first miracle that the bread, the food signifies uh, the word of God. It signifies Christ, who is the word incarnate and the word that proceeds from his mouth, his teaching. Uh, Twelve is, of course, uh, the number that is associated with Israel. And this suggests, we said, that the twelve baskets uh, signify that there is an abundance of food for all Israel to be fed. So, uh, if the feeding of the five thousand was ultimately about Jesus giving himself and giving his word to feed the sheep, the children of Israel, what does the feeding of the four thousand signify? Well, because this is a a predominantly a crowd of Gentiles and because we just saw Jesus feed a Gentile dog, the Syrophoenician woman, this feeding of the 4,000 suggests that the Gentiles are not only going to get scraps. They are eventually going to get a full meal right alongside the children of Israel. And this, of course, is exactly what the New Testament teaches and says in many places. I'll give you a few examples of this. Paul says in Galatians 3, 29, It is those with the faith of Abraham who are Abraham's seed and therefore heirs according to the promise. Ephesians 2, In Christ, both Jews and Gentiles die and rise again and are united into one new man, the body of Christ. Uh, in Romans 1.16, Paul echoes Jesus' order of feeding when he says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and that gospel is to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. So Jesus feeds the sheep of Israel in abundance, and he feeds them first. There's 12 baskets left over, one for each tribe. And now he feeds both Jew and Gentile together. 4,000 people, uh, you know, perhaps signifying the four corners of the earth, seven baskets left over, perhaps uh, one for each day of the week. Uh, Twelve is the number of Israel's fullness. Seven is the number of creational fullness. So whatever the significance of the numbers, uh, Jesus gives a definitive answer to the disciples' question. From whence can a man satisfy this multitude with bread here in the wilderness? Jesus' answer is from me, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I will give myself for the life of the world, both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, uh, before we hear how the disciples respond to this miracle, whether they get it, uh, Mark inserts a little discussion that Jesus has with the Pharisees. So this brings us to our second section here, verses 10 to 13. It says, and straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, There shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them, and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. So do you notice the irony here? Jesus has been doing miracles for seven chapters straight, showing forth his divinity. And then here comes the Pharisees, and they want a sign. Jesus, however, knows that what they want is not really a sign. The the Pharisees don't really want a sign. And we even heard uh, in the reading of Deuteronomy 13, even if someone has some miraculous sign, if they tell you, hey, let's go worship this other God, uh, death penalty for that person. So the Pharisees, in their mind, have a little win-win. If Jesus does the sign, well then, Deuteronomy 13, false prophet, kill him. If he doesn't do a sign, false prophet, no reason to believe him. That's the Pharisaic way of thinking. And, of course, Jesus knows this, and he exposes it. So um, uh, Jesus knows that what they want is they want him dead. And we saw this early in in Mark chapter three, verse six, the Pharisees and the Herodians are already plotting together to destroy Jesus. So what the Pharisees are doing is goading Jesus. They want to get him into trouble with the authorities. They're provoking him to openly reveal who he is. If he's king, well, then that means Caesar is not king. And then we can have the Romans put him to death. Of course, that's eventually what they're going to do. So this is why Mark says that they were seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him, tempting him. They're tempting God, something you're not supposed to do. Uh, So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, Jesus, of course, does not take the bait. Instead, he declares that no sign is going to be given to this generation. And then he gets in the boat and leaves. I'm out. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus is on a mission to expose just how wicked and sinful this generation is. And he is on a mission to expose the sinfulness of sin, the mystery of iniquity. Like the prophets of old, Jesus calls the people to repent. He performs signs and wonders, and he gives them ample opportunity and reason to turn and be saved. But for all of that patience and condescension, there are some people like the Pharisees, there are even entire generations like the Jews of his day who are committed to wickedness. So that even if Jesus did give them a sign from heaven, it would actually only further harden them in unbelief. So who have the Pharisees become? They've become Pharaoh and they don't even know it. They are so hardened in sin that no sign can persuade them otherwise. We saw this earlier, the theme that Mark is building with Jesus out in the wilderness. Jesus is a new Moses, a new Joshua, leading a new exodus into the promised land. And when you think about the way that Mark has set up these characters, who, who is Egypt now? Right? Egypt is uh, Jerusalem. That's the place they actually need to get out of, and in Mark 13, in a few months when we get there, Jesus is going to talk about the plagues and destruction that's going to fall on Jerusalem, kind of like plagues and destruction fell on Egypt. So Jesus is leading a new exodus. He's this new uh, prophet, and the Pharisees are on the wrong side of things. They have become Pharaoh together with Herod. Uh, So... Um, We've already seen uh, what happens when Jesus does miracles. He casts out demons. Remember, the, the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing his mighty works by the power of Beelzebub, by the devil. So... You know, if you're Jesus, why do some other great sign just so it can be attributed to the devil again? Blas- blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is what Jesus says in Luke 16, 31, and it's worthy of our meditation. This is also worthy of uh, you remembering this verse when you're interacting with unbelievers. Jesus says, If they will hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Okay, think about that. If someone does not believe God's word, the Old Testament, you know, they don't believe the Ten Commandments, then they're not going to believe, even if they see with their own eyes a man rise from the dead. Many unbelievers think that if God would just give them a sign, then they would believe in him. But the testimony of scripture and history and, you know, just personal experience is that uh, signs do not do what people think they do signs do not do what people think they do. Asking for a sign is in reality just a front. It's a cover. It's just another excuse for willful unbelief. Jesus says in Matthew's version of this same story that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, people lie to themselves and think that if God were only to give me a sign, then I would stop sleeping around. Then I would go to church. Then I would get clean. Sinners are so proud and self-centered that they think God owes them a sign, that he must save them on their own terms. And if God does not meet their criteria, their demands, then they have no responsibility to believe in him. This is the essence and wickedness of unbelief. But Jesus says, and this is why he says, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, if you don't believe the Old Testament, then you're not going to believe even if I do give you a sign. The proof, the demonstration of Jesus' words, is that someone did die and come back from the dead, and yet still people don't believe. This is the nature of sin, and this is what Jesus comes to expose. As he says in John six sixty three. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. This is why Jesus says, you can't even come to me unless the father which which sent me draws you. Man cannot come without divine grace. So if you want to be saved, you must utterly abhor. You must hate. You must forsake your flesh. And if you find in yourself that temptation to ask God for a sign in order to believe, be careful, beware, because you are like a fish asking for proof of water. There are signs of God everywhere. You are a living, breathing sign. You bear the very image of the Trinity. Your conscience testifies to God's moral law. You know right and wrong. Your desires, your secret innermost desires testify that you are made to live forever. No, nobody wants to die. And if you look up at the sky, the heavens are shouting, screaming the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19. Furthermore, the fact that this world is full of Christians is a perpetual witness that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. We are those who Jesus spoke of when he said to Thomas, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed, John 20, 29. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And Jesus says, no sign from heaven will be given to them, only the sign of Jonah descending into the heart of the earth. Well, as bad as the Pharisees are, uh, the disciples are not much better In verses 14 to 21, they continue to miss the point of Jesus' miracles and teaching. So if anybody has seen some signs, uh, the disciples have seen some signs, and yet they still are unbelieving. So verse 14, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And the disciples reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. So what is the disciples' problem? Uh, They're not like the Pharisees who are trying to get Jesus killed or tempting him for a sign. Uh, The disciples' blindness is of a different species, a different sort. They see the signs, they eat the bread, they hear the teaching, but they have no understanding. They don't understand what it means. So Jesus says to them, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod." And they take that as, uh, "Is he warning us about getting bread from those guys?" <laughs> they're, they're confused. They think he's talking about bread. Uh, we we learn in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is actually warning them about the false doctrine and hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Herod. Uh, that's what leaven is. So the leaven of the Pharisees is that they elevated, as we have seen earlier, uh, their traditions, their traditions above the word of God. Their leaven, their teaching is to appear orthodox, to appear righteous while inwardly nursing adulterous and covetous hearts. Pharisaic leaven cloaks wickedness under the guise and appearance of righteousness. Well, what about the leaven of Herod? Uh, the leaven of Herod, on the other hand, is uncloaked pomp, uncloaked perversity. Herod's leaven is the delusional grandeur that styles oneself above one's true rank. The Herodians, and perhaps Herod himself, thought that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. You think, there's all these prophecies in the Old Testament about a Messiah who's going to come, and if you calculate, according to Daniel, it's going to come about this time, the time when Jesus comes. And who else just happens to be ruling at that time? Well, Herod. So you can imagine someone using the scriptures, like the Herodians, to prove, Herod, you're the one that's prophesied in here. You, you must be the Christ, you must be the Messiah. So there was a whole Herodian cult uh, around King Herod. Of course, uh, anyone who inquired into Moses and the prophets would know that uh, this Herod does not really qualify, and yet the Orthodox Pharisees find an ally in Herod and the Herodians because they had common cause together to destroy Jesus. So Jesus says, beware of just a little bit of that leaven entering into you, because as the, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole Lump. So the Pharisees and the Herodians represent the decadence and depravity of that generation. They are the elites among that evil and adulterous generation who demands a sign. And although we might uh, think ourselves, like the disciples, immune to that kind of leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, uh, Jesus knows how weak our wills are. Jesus knows how easily we forget all the miracles he has performed. Jesus knows that we need, to, we need to get bread daily from him. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's very easy to look at the disciples and laugh at them. But we forget what God did for us yesterday. We forget the many times that he has delivered us. The many times we've prayed the Lord's Prayer and God has given us daily bread. Right? How uh, very few of us have genuinely had to pray that prayer because we weren't sure where our next meal was going to come from, right? God uh, provides and blesses for us in an abundance that we are totally blind and ignorant to. I'll close with this. In verse 14, it says that, that the disciples forgot to take bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Well, who is in the boat with them? Jesus. Jesus is that one loaf he is the bread he is the multiplier of bread he is the creator of bread and if Jesus is in the boat with us if the leaven of Christ the gospel is in our hearts well then we have food to grow up into eternal life so repent of your unbelief don't seek for a sign from heaven don't test God for the sign of salvation has already been given Jesus Christ is risen from the dead In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would expose uh, the ways that we feed upon the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. We ask that you would protect us, that you would guard your bride, that you would defend her against all of the false teaching and nonsense that is out there. We ask that you would give us a heart to fear you, a heart to tremble at your word and a heart of love to do what you command. Pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.